0: MashaAllah, may Allah bless you and reward you for coming so early to the masjid. And may Allah bless you further for coming forward also, mashaAllah. Uh, out of keenness for the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah bless you. For Allah have given you the tawfiq to come so early to the masjid, mashaAllah. Come forward, mashaAllah. Come forward, mashaAllah. Out of out of love for Quran and Sunnah. أعطى الله عنه الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم ما شاء الله ما شاء الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمّدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد يقول الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم وتعاونوا على البر والتقوى ولا تعاونوا على الإثم والعدوان وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم المسلم أخو المسلم صدق الله العظيم Honorable Ulama, respected elders and brothers, last week I was in Turkey and Syria and I had joined the Jamiatul Ulama South Africa Relief Team on the ground as we were doing assessment as to what is happening in that part of the world. So we had visited many towns that were affected by the earthquake and we had an opportunity to personally interact with the victims and the survivors of the earthquake. And it was a real eye-opener and an experience that one would never forget. When you put the situation in context, you had the earthquake that struck the southern of Turkey and the northern parts of Syria. But when you look at the scale of destruction, when you look at the Syrian front, the scale of destruction was less compared to Turkey. And if you look at the death toll and the figures, plus minus 5,000 to 6,000 casualties on the Syrian front. But the situation has more or less stabilized on that side. But when you look at just across the border, you've got about 42,000 and plus in terms of casualties and victims to the earthquake. So the scale of destruction is much more severe on the Turkish front when compared to the Syrian size. But what's very unique about Syria is that Syria is cut up from the rest of the world. So you don't have a recognized body through which you can work with in terms of relief effort or in terms of rescue mission. So let me create the context for you. When you look at Turkey, Turkey is a first world country and they've got diplomatic ties with the rest of the world it's a legitimate government what recognize what the recognized body therefore for them to coordinate the relief effort is much easier compared to syria so you had about 88 rescue teams from around the world that was present in turkey but when you look at syria because there isn't a recognized body you can't get into syria So the relief effort was hampered quite a bit and the rescue effort was also hampered quite a bit because of limited resources and been cut off from the rest of the world. The one account of, there's an organization that works in Syria that's called the White Helmets. These are volunteers that are trained individuals that have been working for the last decade because of the Syrian crisis. Uh, they are able to do some sort of relief work because of their local presence there. But other than that, you don't have NGOs or you don't have rescue efforts or rescue teams coming from across the world to come and help in Syria. So there they are using a shovel, they are using a wheelbarrow, they are using their bare hands to to dig through the rubble. The one account of the white helmets is that I heard a cry of a child from within the rubble but we couldn't get there in time because of limited resources and not having the necessary tools to dig through and comb through the rubble. They say by the time we reach a child, the child has already passed on. So when you compare the situation between Syria and Turkey, although the casualties are less on the Syrian side, but the situation is very peculiar in the sense that they are cut off from the rest of the world in terms of diplomatic ties. So when you look at uh, the the Turkish front in South Africa was one of the teams that were part of the mission on the ground. You have highly advanced trained doctors working on the ground on the Turkish side because of their resources and access to the rest of the world. You have ambulances, you have excavators, uh, you have all sorts of high tech technology employed to help you with the situation. The South African team was explaining to us, we were on the ground, they had a device that could sense heat and movement. So that device within a 10 meter radius was able to zone into a 15 meter rubble. Within within that 15 meter rubble they could sense heat or movement of a person. And that's how they were going about doing the relief effort uh, in terms of search and rescue. So what I'm saying is that when you look at the Syrian front and the Turkish front, Although the scale of destruction is much worse on the Turkish front, but the Syrians have their own challenges that they are dealing with. And secondly, what you must understand that, the Syrians is not the first time that they are going through such a catastrophe. They are in the Syrian crisis since 2011. So for the last decade, as they were trying to pick up the pieces of their puzzle and trying to put their life together, Another setback in the form of a natural disaster that occurs. So they back into where they were just about 10 years ago. And that is really, uh, you know, heart wrenching when you speak to the people on the ground. So this is basically an overview of what is happening on the Turkish side and the Syrian side. The next question that arises is that how are the people receiving you on the ground? So when you go on to the Syrian side, because there's no language barrier and we are able to converse in Arabic, Alhamdulillah, we were able to speak directly to the survivors and the victims. And wallahi, when you see them, they get so happy. They get so happy. The one man we met him, his name was Abu Abdullah. When he saw us, he said, Al-Muslim wa Akhul Muslim. Al-Muslim wa Akhul Muslim. He was so happy, embraced us and he said, I feel so happy and touched that you flew all the way from South Africa just to come check on us. We're not interested in your aid. We're more touched by your personal uh, effort that you have undertaken to come and check on us personally. And he quoted the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that a mu'min is a brother to another mu'min. So just as how you would check on your blood brother, if something happens to him, you'll phone him, everything is okay, I'm coming down now, I'll be with you there. You support him in his crisis, if there's an accident, if there's a mayyat or whatever, you go and provide comfort to the family. Just as you would do it with your own blood brother, this is how we are ought to be responding to the rest of the ummah, because the Prophet of Allah has described us as brothers unto one another. al mu'minuna ikhwa As the Quran says, that the Muslims are brothers unto one another. So he became so able to come all the way just to check on the people on the ground. SubhanAllah. And they receive you with open arms. The one brother we met him in Janderis, we asked him what would be your message to the people back in South Africa and the Muslim Ummah world over. He said two things. Tahabu, Tarahamu. Love one another and show kindness to one another. That's the first thing. Help one another in matters of khayr, in matters of goodness, which is the verse of the Qur'an. And don't help one another in matters of vice, in matters of evil. So they receive you with open arms. They are so happy to see you. Why? Because it tells them that, yes, they're going through such a difficult time, but we're not alone in this. Sometimes a person (coughs) who stands with you might not be able to do much for you. That just their moral support means so much to you, that somebody is looking out for you, that you took the trouble to come, that you are taking a share in our pain and in our joy. You are taking a share in our pain and in our joy. <coughs> and this is a comforting factor for a person who is going through with <coughs> the difficulties on their side. You must understand that most of these people have not left the borders of Syria or Turkey. Most of them are residents of the area and they've they've lived their whole life there. So for them to see foreigners coming into the country and to solely come to check on the people is such a big deal for them. Such a big deal. And from here we take a lesson that even on a local front, if something happens somewhere close by or somewhere where we can reach, we must go and be part of the whole thing and provide support, provide comfort, Consolation because the hadith of the Prophet Musliman, he who consoles his Muslim brother at a time of difficulty, Allah will give him a garment exclusive from Jannah. Just on your mere consolation of that person, Allah will give you a garment from Jannah. كَسَاهُ min Jannah. It's such a beautiful teaching, that we're not only there for ourselves, but we think beyond ourselves when it comes to life and all other matters related. So that's the second is that, how are they reacting to the situation around them? And to answer this question, we spoke to a clinical psychologist that was working in the areas that were hit by the earthquake. So we asked the psychologist, what are the people saying and how are they responding? And this clinical psychologist said, you know, I thought I'll go and provide consolation and do trauma counseling to the victims, but they are providing counseling to me. So she's saying that it is mind-boggling to see how a person that has been through such a traumatic experience say, Alhamdulillah. He said, so she says, whoever you speak to, the first words that come out from their mouth is, Alhamdulillah. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. And she says, I am gobsmacked. Because as a trauma counselor, when you're going through with this, there's a part of your brain that doesn't function so well because of the trauma. And she says, usually a victim faces confusion, guilt, Guilt for what? Guilt in the sense that you survived and somebody else in your family passed away. So there's confusion, there's guilt. You are overwhelmed. You're feeling restless. You're feeling helpless. You are confused as to how to interpret things around you. So she's saying as a counselor, I was gobsmacked to see that the victims when I'm speaking to them, the first thing they say is Alhamdulillah. And they say, Allah wa ni'mal wakeel. Allah اللَّهُ وَنِعْمَ الْوَكِيلُ Wallahi we saw this with our own eyes when you see such iman and resilience from the people on the ground Ya Allah, it is so amazing and there's so many stories that I can share with you let me share with you one or two stories one is the incident of Abu Abdullah we were in the town of Janderis in Syria which was the worst in the streets and we saw a man on the side of the road well, a small piece of carpet and some rice and some sour milk. So we thought he's a vagrant, maybe just, you know, staying, that's how he's living. We said, let's stop and ask him. As-salamu haluk? We asked him, ya akhi, ma akhbaruk? And suddenly he's elated because he sees another Muslim coming to visit him. So we asked him, what is the story? He said, you see, just across the road, That was my apartment. And now it's in ruins. So we asked him, can you narrate to us what happened? He said that morning when the earthquake struck, it was around 4.20, 4.30 in the morning, it was raining very, very hard, number one. Number two, it was cold, freezing cold. And number three, just before the earthquake struck, there was a screeching hollow, very very scared sound that emanated from the ground and he said we realized that something is going to happen so we grabbed whatever we could so there were eight in the house eight family members he had a seven year old seven month child and another small child and the wife so four of them they managed to come out of the house he says i took the first flight of stairs second one by the time i could get to the third one the entire house came crumbling down, but we just managed to escape so then he says, my two sons, my nephew and my my mother, were still trapped inside and he says, I lost all hope of finding them, because the, we saw it with our own eyes and we said it was a miracle for how they had survived under the trouble he said, I lost all hope For, for as I came out I'm screaming for help but nobody is there to help them because everybody is in their own parashani and their own situation trying to salvage whatever they can on their side so i'm running this side like a headless chicken and that side and then i realized i'm for myself he said for 14 hours i didn't know whether they are alive or not and then suddenly i hear a call from inside calling my name abu abu then I said, ha, there's hope, masha'Allah. The rescue team managed, manages to pull them out of the rubble, and 14 hours later they come out. The two sons are safe, his mother is also safe, but the nephew passed away. So he said, we asked him, how's the condition of your children? Omar and Muhammad, those were the names. So he said, I also asked my children, what were you people doing 14 hours under the rubble, stuck? Stuck. So the one son said, I was comforting my brother and we both were helping each other by making dhikr and taking the name of Allah, number one. And he said, you know, my son is, has such a unique habit, he don't miss salah. So we asked him, how old is your son? He said, my son is about 12 years old, but he doesn't miss salah at all. So when the time of salah entered, he's asking his grandmother, granny, how do I perform salah? And the granny said, Salli bi makanik. Just perform salah wherever you are and however you are. When we heard this, you know, it left me in tears that even, even though the world around them is coming down in pieces and shattered, yet they are so conscious of their salah. And we, on the other hand, for silly, silly excuses, we miss salah. Hey, you know, I was busy, man. You know, I got delayed, man. I got stuck, man. We miss salah for small, small reasons. And these are youngsters, 12 years of age, even though the world is coming, crumbling down in front of them. They are so conscious about this salah. Then he told us an amazing thing. We asked him, what was your conversation the night before? Like every other person. So he said, before my children went to sleep, I was, I was talking to them. I said, Wahidullah, be firm on Tawheed, worship only one Allah. Be punctual with your salah. Do not disturb or irk your neighbors. Be kind to them. So he said before my children went to sleep, Omar asked me, Baba, what must I read before I go to sleep? So the father said, I said to them, read Qulahu Bil Falaq, the four Quls, Qulahu Bil Falaq, and you know the others. So the other son asked, Baba, what must I read? He said, You also read the same like your brother. He said, Wallahi, in the morning when this happened. 14 hours later when I saw them coming out alive, I was shocked myself. And then I realized the conversation we had the night before. What a noble home. I mean, nobody knew that you're going to sleep and the next morning this is going to happen. It's an ordinary day. But this was the discussion they had the night before the earthquake struck. It's so much of, so much of food for us to, you know, it's food for thought to think, what's the environment of our home How are we bringing up our kids? And for a child to be so conscious of his deen, even under such circumstances, tells you a lot about the upbringing of the parents and the environment of the home. It's amazing. Wallah, there were so many miracles, so many miracles that happened at that time. There was one elderly lady, how are we doing on time? There was an elderly lady, a grandmother, also on the Syrian front. She's sitting, on a hill on a hilltop and across the hill she's pointing like this to us she's saying can you see that cupboard that was my house a few days ago and she's crying so we asked her what happened Ya she said I lost four grandchildren to the earthquake three granddaughters and one grandson and she's crying Profusely, and she's saying, My son, the father of the children, is critically wounded and injured. His spine is injured, and his neck is broken. He's currently in hospital. And she's crying, because she lost everything around her. Material possession is one thing you can come to, you know, you can console yourself somehow. But how do you console yourself when you have loved ones connected to you? And that's also as a grandparent. It's such a such an advanced age of your life. So we said to her, "Allah make it easy for you." Instead of us consoling her, she's telling us, "May Allah protect you. May Allah preserve you. Please make du'a for us." For a person to be so connected at that time to Allah is really the essence of iman. Because I read the hadith and I taught it also in class. But I never really understood the context of sabr until I met the people on the ground. The hadith says, وَمَن يَتَصَبَّرْ يُصَبِّرُهُ اللَّهُ That he who seeks patience through Allah, Allah will grant him patience. Allah will grant him patience. So I taught the hadith, I explained the commentary of the hadith, but I never understood the practical connotation of this hadith. Until I met these people on the ground that, I mean you think about it yourself You lose 5-10 people from your house And your entire apartment comes down crawling And you got nothing And then for you to say Alhamdulillah And to say Allah wa that is Iman and Sabr In its essence One is to say Alhamdulillah When things are going good in our life It's easier to do that but one is to say, Alhamdulillah, when your entire world has shattered around you, the media will not cover the human angle of the catastrophe. And how the people are coping with the challenge and, and this this huge problem that they are facing at the moment. So this hajja, this elderly lady is saying, Allah protect you, Allah preserve you, Allah look after you. She gave us so much to us. I felt embarrassed and small. That, where is this person's iman and where am I in my conviction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? There's another incident, we spoke to one of the rescue workers on the Turkish side in Karaman Marash where the epicenter was. Ya Allah. This man says we were working in the area and we pulled out the body of a man three or four days after the earthquake. And as we pulled his body out, you know, we are doing the procedure of hussal and whatever it is, we realized there was a very pleasant, fragrant smell, a scent that was emanating from his body. So they found us very astonishing, that how is it, you know, so many days later, and there's such a beautiful, fragrant smell coming out from this person's body. So it was him and the son, same situation. So they did some research and they found out who this man was. So they found out that this was a Syrian man from Halab, from Aleppo. And he used to write poetry in the praise of Rasulullah وسلم. So he had very deep love for the Rasul of Allah. And he was always writing poetry or articles about the love of Rasulullah وسلم. So they said, when we pulled his body out, we found a broad smile on his face and a pleasant smell or a very fragrant smell coming out from his body. So when we asked them, how do you people cope with so much of trauma around you? They said, it's difficult. But when you see incidents like this, it rejuvenates your iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said, not one, but so many incidents we've seen, that as we are combing through the rubble, we find Quran intact, intact. I was in Antakya; that town is ghosted. So we were, we're looking through the building, the, the building has collapsed and there's a deep crack running through the wall and there's one frame pinned onto the wall. You couldn't see with the naked eye so I had to zoom in on the camera. I zoomed in, I saw the word Allah written on the frame standing intact. Amazing. So what we should witness is, is is something which you cannot put in words. Allah, we need to come together as a an ummah. And we are one body. It's not them and us. It is us together, as the entire ummah as a collective. And as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, that my ummah is like one body. One entity. Any part feels the body, the entire body feels the pain. In conclusion, how do we approach the situation? The first thing is dua. Allah records your concern and your fervor for the ummah of Muhammad You might not be able to do much as an individual, but Allah records that this man, every day he made dua for the ummah. Of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, so many other parts of the world, the Rohingya refugees, and so many other crises the Muslim ummah is facing. It is our duty to make dua for the brethren. Number two is to give out charity. Give out charity with the, with the intention that Allah brings favorable condition for the ummah. Your personal relationship with Allah, Allah is fully aware of that. And Allah is going to record that in your account. And the third thing is, to follow the situation closely. How are you going to express concern for the ummah when you don't know what is happening? I find it astonishing that in some places, they're not even reading kunut and Nazilah and Fajr, simply because the person is not connected to what's happening in the ummah. They say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, very bad, very bad. How can you be cut off from the ummah? It was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and the sahaba. It was their practice to keep checks on the ummah to see what is happening in different parts of the world for the ummah. I'll give you a simple example of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab and we end off. It was the incident of Qadisiyah. The point I'm highlighting is how concerned he was of the welfare of the ummah. And you can, the point is you can only be concerned if you're following what's happening. If you don't know what is happening, how are you going to express sympathy and empathy for somebody? Oh no, I never knew. I never knew it was so bad. So in Qadisiyya, the Muslim army is in a very, very, very decisive battle. One of the deciding factors in the Muslim Ummah. And there's no news coming through to Medina. Sayyidina Umar is the Khalifa of the time in his Medina. He's so restless that uh, under the scorching sun during midday, he leaves the boundaries of Medina, the boundaries of the city, and is sitting outside under the scorching sun, with a hope that some caravan is going to pass by now, or some traveller is going to pass by of Qadisiyah. And everybody is going past, is asking, do you have any news? Do you have any information about Qadisiyah? What's happening to the Muslims there? Until somebody comes and informs him that they are victorious. And he falls to the ground and he says, Alhamdulillah. What is this? This is checking on the ummah. How are you going to make dua for somebody when you don't know what they are facing in their life? So follow, not with the the intention of facts and figures or information, but with this intention that, Oh Allah, I want to be connected to the ummah. And I want to follow what is happening in the Ummah. And I want to do my level best to be part of the pain and the joy of the Ummah. We are one Ummah. We are one Ummah. And life can change anytime for anybody. There were those people who went to sleep at night with hopes of waking up the next morning. Little did they realize that tomorrow might not be a day that they will see. Life is so fragile. So fragile and so unpredictable that anything can change for anybody at any given moment in life. And how powerful Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for our brethren across the Muslim world. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ease their plight. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala aid and shelter them. May Allah cure their sick. May Allah grant jannah to their marhumeen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant strength to the ummah. The masjid will be doing collections for Syria and Turkey this week and next week after the Jummah Salah. Do contribute whatever you can for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.